Welcome to the Nonprofit Hero Factory, a weekly live video broadcast and podcast where we'll be helping nonprofit leaders and innovators create more heroes for their cause and a better world for all of us. Ding. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to an episode of the Nonprofit Hero Factory. I'm excited about today's guest. He is an advisor on all matters philanthropy on both sides to philanthropists and nonprofits. He's going to give us some inside looks and some things to consider, consider, well, based on recent events and recent news and historic uh, roles of nonprofits and philanthropists. His name is Doug White. Doug is a longtime leader and scholar in the nation's philanthropic community. He's an author and an advisor to nonprofit organizations and philanthropists, as I said. He serves as the co-chair of the Walter Cronkite Committee at Foolproof and as a board member, the vice president of the Secular Coalition of America. He is the former director of Columbia University's Master of Science in Fundraising Management program, where he also taught board governance, ethics, and fundraising. Doug has published five books. His most recent, Wounded Charity, analyzes the allegations of mismanagement made in January 2016 against the Wounded Warrior Project. I know a lot of us heard about that and uh, were affected by it in one way or another. When I asked Doug what his superpower is, he says, I try to help people better understand the role nonprofits play in our society and the impact they have on individual lives. I examine the personal stories of charities as well as the broader policy implications of philanthropy. So with that, I would love to welcome Doug to the show. And hi, Doug. Thank you so much Hello. for joining us today. It's my uh, pleasure, Boris. If you don't mind, uh, obviously I just read your bio and it is impressive, but uh, Tell us your story. I began in the philanthropic world in the late 1970s when someone asked me to come to dinner. They asked me to then go out and talk to some people about raising some money. And I said, sure, it was for my high school. And I went out and talked to these people and they all said yes when I asked them for money. And I was so surprised because they weren't getting anything back. And I thought this is easier than selling refrigerators or cars or anything like that, even though there's nothing really tangible there to give to these people for what they're, what they're paying. I thought, what is going on there? And they said, well, I really had this great experience and I wanna give back. All of these things that we now take for granted when we talk about fundraising. But for me, that was brand new. And it was, a, it was so eye-opening. I knew that was my life's mission at that point. That's pretty awesome. Um, and I'd love to actually talk to you more uh, about what it is that you think got them to um, quickly and easily. Basically, it sounds like it wasn't very difficult to convince them to give. Uh, clearly, that led you into this career of working with philanthropists as well as nonprofits. Why did you uh, decide to go into philanthropy advising? Because over the years, it's become clear that many donors want to make sure their money goes to the causes they want to see furthered. And a lot of times they don't really know what those causes are. And so it takes a process that's become rather institutionalized in the last couple of decades, but still at the beginning of all of this, it wasn't. But it takes a process to actually talk to a would-be or a philanthropist about his or her values. What do you want to see changed in the world? How do you want to see your money used? We've gotten to the point on let's say Maslow's hierarchy to the point where they are comfortable with their own world. They have what they need and their needs are taken care of. So now they're saying, how can I look out to the rest of the world and do something about that? 
Well, a lot of people really don't know what they want to do. They really don't. But when they do know what they want to do, uh, they still have another hurdle to find out what organization is going to best further that mission. So it's a matter of going through a questionnaire in my view, in my case, and I think it's probably the way most of uh, philanthropy advisors do this, uh, that really examines values. And it also has to do with uh, family issues, like what do you want your children to be when they grow up in terms of what their value system is? Uh, what kind of a world do you want to leave behind? What kind of legacy do you want to leave? When I was on the board of what was then the National Committee on uh, for Planned Giving, I started this group called uh, Leave a Legacy. And I think that's still going, but it's a, it's a local group. It's a local, it's a group that has local efforts around the country where people are encouraged to leave a legacy at a nonprofit through their, through their bequests or some trust or something like that. And that has grown. That idea has grown and that, and that, that vernacular has grown, leave a legacy. But what does that mean? What do, what, what do I want to do? How do I want to affect the world after I'm gone? people have difficult enough time to think about dying to begin with, let alone how the world's going to look like after they, after they leave. But that's the kind of conversation you have to have with people. And they are willing to have that because they're asking you, what can I do to make the world a better place? Uh, so I want to touch on uh, several of those things, and I think we're going to come back to a, a few of them because they're definitely on my list of things to, to chat with you about today. Um, but one of the reasons why this is so important right now, and I feel like predominantly my audience is nonprofit communications, marketing and fundraisers. Um, and their goal is, of course, to help their organization grow to, as I like to say, activate more heroes for their cause. It seems that over the last uh, at least few years, there has been a trend in giving where there's been fewer and fewer uh, smaller donors and more and more uh, philanthropists on a larger scale that are actually more than making up for the losses in, in the smaller, um, in smaller donations. So overall giving is increasing while uh, with possibly the exception of COVID last year, which I think did drive a lot more people to open up and, and empathize and donate to local organizations or national ones. But aside from that, um, there's been that decline and giving has grown regardless of that. So why do you think that, what do you think that trend is about? What's, what's happening? I call that, I have a phrase for it. It's the de-democratization of fundraising. When I began in the early 1980s with this fundraising gig, I was concentrating on the people who gave low amounts of money. You asked earlier about how I was able to get these people to, give money to this school. And I can answer you by saying they basically asked themselves. I was just the conduit. I was just able to release some of their memories and some of their good feelings about the place and how that school helped them become who they were. I know that's a bit of a cliche right now, and it's not entirely true, but it's true enough. And a school college, whatever, oftentimes makes an impact on you. And so I, I was very involved with, those are thousand dollar gifts. And that at the time was a big deal, but I was involved with those people who were giving low amounts of money. Today, a thousand dollars is almost meaningless to some of these organizations. 
But over the decades, we've become enamored with the large donors. And why not? If someone's got a potential to give you a million dollars, you're going to pay attention to that person. You're going to, you're going to cultivate him over years, maybe, or her over years. And why not? Because that's going to result in more money than cultivating a person who's got the capacity to give $1,000 or $500 or something even less. It, it makes economic sense to take the time to do that. And it makes sense for the organization's growth to do that. But I have also noticed that we are doing that at the expense of paying attention to our smaller donors. And I, I fear that the pool that we create of smaller donors will not be enough to then turn into larger donors as time passes. And maybe, maybe the future of philanthropy is that your big donor will just come in and show up and say, I care about your cause. And so, boom, I'm going to give, I'm going to give you this money. But especially with organizations that like say heritage organizations like schools, they grow into being donors. Uh, seniors in college are, are asked to give to their class fund as seniors in college. That wasn't true when I was in college. And so the idea there is to create a level of paying back, uh, an understanding of how the school works, and also to have a participation level. Right now, I'm in my 50th reunion for my high school, the school I'm it's Exeter, just so you'll know. And uh, we, we're very concerned about having a participation level at, at, a very high, at a very high level. And that's crucial because it keeps people lubricated, if you will, their philanthropic senses lubricated and keeps Exeter on the front page. And there are so many other com competitors for them, the local food bank, uh, their daughter's schools, uh, the local hospital where they had surgery, and, and they're all legitimate competitors. And so what we say in our situation is don't, don't, uh, don't forget them. But do keep in mind the school that got this all started for you. And even if you can't give a lot or don't want to give a lot, then your participation is crucial. So that keeps that, that, that pyramid in the proper level. Still, though, what used to be an 80-20 rule is closer to a 95-5 rule. And we are, we are paying so much attention to that 5%. And you are correct. COVID really brought out a lot of those smaller donors. It's because that's where the heartstrings were. After 9-11, Red Cross brought a lot of smaller donors out. And so a tragedy or a, a, an intense situation will get our heartstrings going, and that's good. But that's temporary. And so charities have to figure out how to continue that. And I, I think there's a lot of argument to be made to, even though it makes sense to go to the large donor and cultivate that person, or the prospect, it also makes a lot of sense to cultivate the smaller donors as well, because otherwise we're, we're going to get into a situation where it's seen that philanthropy is only for the rich. In fact, when I make my own phone calls for this reunion, people will say, you've got too much of an endowment. You don't need my money. Besides, you've got X, Y, or Z famous name giving you this money. You don't need me. What is my $100 going to do? And I have to go through the process and say, look, even though there's a big budget, every dollar is accounted for. And the school does do that. And it's, it does that very well. And that's one recommendation for charitable organizations is to make sure that they are, they're running their business properly. I say business, not in air quotes, but I do say it a little cautiously because I don't want to get 
people confuse between what a for-profit business is and a non-profit business is. But the way I look at it is that both start with the same premise that you've got to stay alive. You have to pay people. You have to have an office, I think, even today. You have to have computers. You have to have operational activity taking place. The difference is that the purpose of a, of a for-profit is to make a profit for shareholders. A nonprofit doesn't have shareholders. It can often make a profit. That's another issue. But it isn't meant to go out of business or it's not meant to go poor or be poor just because it doesn't sell widgets. In fact, I think what it sells is much grander than widgets or any other widget that we can we can identify. So um, absolutely, nonprofits do need to function as businesses, uh, as any other business, and they do compete with businesses for the attention and the money of people who might support it or might go and spend their money somewhere else and their time doing something else. So there's a lot of that uh, at play. Um, it's interesting what you call the de democratization of philanthropy. I was very excited uh, just seemingly a few years ago when the crowdfunding space first took off because I saw that as the democratization of philanthropy where anyone could become a donor to any organization where any organization can also reach out and capture the interests and hopefully hearts of just about anybody that they could uh, have some sort of affinity with. It was an exciting time. Uh, today, I'm not sure how prevalent that is in people's mindsets, in the organizations themselves. You know, is it worthwhile for them to run a campaign versus just make a few phone calls, wine and dine somebody, if you will, bring them to the gala and get that big check. But it does say something for their future. It also, I think, and you and I agree on this, possibly shifts their focus and attention away from a more groundswell public want for their services to what an individual or a few individuals might be looking for uh, the changes that they want to see in the world. And you talk a little bit about this outsized influence that uh, some of the deeper pocket philanthropists might have on the charitable sector today. It seems to be more and more prevalent. Let me give you a little bit of history on that particular segment of philanthropy. I did a book on this. It was uh, the lawsuit against Princeton University. In 1961, a woman, an heiress of the A&P fortune, and for most of your audience, that is going to be like coming out of Mars. They used to be the largest grocery chain in the United States for many, many decades. Well, the trust dissolved after the death of a grandchild, and so she inherited directly about $100 million, and she gave about $35 million of that to Princeton University. A huge gift, the largest gift to that university at that time, the second largest gift event of any university at that time, to establish the graduate program or to endow the graduate program at the Woodrow Wilson School, an international relations school. Time passes. We understand that the family's not happy with the way the money is spent. And so in 2002, this is 40 years after the gift was made, the son sues Princeton. Now, by this time, that $35 million has grown to about $900 million. The family set up a separate foundation. Princeton was the only beneficiary of that foundation, which is fine. And as a result, Princeton included that 
endowment in its endowment totals, which is also fine. They were the only beneficiary, so it made sense. But the son said, you're not using the money the way my father wanted to. And they said, yes, we are. And so he had sat on the board. There, were, there was a foundation, it was a separate organization. Four members were from Princeton, three were from the family. And he contended that a lot of the decisions were being made in their absence and money was being spent without their permission and knowledge. And that, that, that a lot of the money was going to the wrong place. It was going within Princeton. Nobody was walking home with a Cadillac or anything of that nature, but it was just that the donor's intentions weren't being served. Princeton came back and said, look, we're, we, we've got a great school here and it's, it's a lot to do with your dad. So let's not get that wrong. Princeton's graduate school here is, is among the best in the world, if not the best in the world. And the donor kept saying, that's not the question. The question is, are you using my dad's money the way you said you would use it? It was a terrible ordeal. And going back to your question, the donors, that was the first donor that I know of, the, the, that I know of, there were others, I'm sure, that uh, ran into trouble with regard to how their money was going to be used. But did they have a right to say this is the way it should be used? Well, if Princeton agrees to it, my answer is yes, they do have that right. Now, fast forward to 2021, and you've got a very similar situation taking place right now at the University of Chicago. So what I'm getting at, Boris, is that there is an environment right now where large donors are expecting that their wishes are going to be granted. And the key thing for me is that the, the university or the charity agrees to this. And my, my thinking is not being an attorney and not looking at this through the legal lens, but from an ethical lens, if you're saying you're going to do it, then by golly, you got to do it. So that's a specific case with a very large donation. Um, how do we extrapolate that on, on a national level? It seems like, um, and you know, people are often accusing um, or I don't know if accusing is the right word, but um, upset with an outsized influence that deeper pocketed individuals or large corporations have on our political system. It seems like there's something similar that might be going on in the philanthropic system, the other side of, of, of things, if you will, where the government isn't directly involved. Is that an, uh, a cause for concern when a, a small percentage, as you said, fewer than than uh, 20% at this point of the donors are maybe even if they're not dictating, if they're not saying, uh, here's a 60 page contract, but they're saying, I'm going to support an organization that's promising to do this. And then sure, they might want metrics and, and uh, performance indicators throughout. But is that do you think an issue for us and for most nonprofits out there? George Washington in his farewell address warned of organizations that today we'd call charities, warned against the influence of charities. And what he meant by that was individuals who may have different designs on the way American society should be from the designs that Congress, the people speaking through their representatives would say our society should be. And since that day in the 1790s, when he sent that 
farewell address to Congress. It was actually published in a newspaper. But since that day, we've always had that tension. You know, what role does what, what role does charity play in our society? And when we ask that question, we then, in today's vernacular, also have to ask what role does the donor play in that whole process? Nobody elected Bill Gates to anything, and yet he's had massive influence over much of our public life. Now, most people think that his influence has been very, very positive, and I'm going to grant those people that. But it still is not necessarily an expression of the people's will in the United States. So I think we always have to take that into account. And any organization that, this is where the tension is, any organization that wants money has to balance getting that money with how strictly they want to adhere to that particular wish by the donor. But I think it's fair to say at this point that donors do have much more influence over a charity's mission than they used to, and they're expecting to. I, I'm not a psychologist, but I will say that I, my impression is that the richer you are, the more arrogant you get. In, oh gosh, I forget the year, but if, some years ago, Mark Zuckerberg began an initiative in Newark for the Newark public school systems in Newark, New Jersey, $100 million, and it was going to be matched by other philanthropists. And one of the billionaires that I spoke with was part of that group. And he criticized himself as well as Mark Zuckerberg and the entire effort because they knew better. They, they could take their private helicopter from a Manhattan heliport, go over and plop themselves down in Newark and say, here, here's the money and this is how it's going to be spent and you're all going to be the better for it. No one talked to the people on the ground in Newark to say, how can this money best be spent? No one among the advisors of this came from the Newark public school system or even the Newark schools uh, or the community. So I think there's a lot of lesson in that. You know, there's, we don't know better, um, but who does? You know, the public charities are owned by the public, not any shareholders. So who does? Well, the board of directors is supposed to. There is no real, I guess what I'm getting at, there's no real ultimate arbiter that we can know is going to be right or know everything. It's a messy system. Does the donor not know things? Probably not. He or she does know things and could help the organization well. But how much deference should we give to that one person is a question that's probably going to plague us forever. What I think is the best answer, and it's not clean and it's not perfect, but the best answer is to have a good board of directors who care about the mission, who are intensely engaged in the organization, and who have backgrounds that represent what the missions or uh, the organization's mission is all about. Deferring to those people as a group, they still might get it wrong, but it's more than just one person. And of course, people will say, what if the, the billionaire is on the board and he just rides roughshod over everyone. Well, that's a board governance problem. That person shouldn't ride roughshod over everyone. But that does happen. That's real life. I mean, I do a lot of work in board governance, and my goodness, that happens a lot. So it sounds like you're saying there's that the reality is that they do have an outsized uh, influence, and there's no um, 
easy solution to that, nor is it necessarily a problem or something that, that needs to be solved. Um, I think that personally, the, the solution is to have a broader base of donors and a more, um, I guess, stricter uh, board and uh, adherence to mission so that uh, billionaires or whomever it is can't ride roughshod, as, as you just called it, can't uh, override. Of course, they could also just start their own foundations like Bill Gates did and like so many billionaires do uh, in order to try to influence the change they want to see in the world. Um, I'm a little conflicted on, on this personally because on the one hand, I uh, do believe that the greatest good needs to be responsive to the greatest number of people, but I'm also not a direction by committee kind of person. I think that often dilutes intentions and often gets nothing done. And in the US system specifically, and you and I talked about this a little earlier, you know, we have this democratic system, this capitalist system where it, as much as it uh, is complicated and far from perfect today, there is some of this uh, idea of anyone can pull themselves up and, and rise up. Of course, that's not true for everyone in this country, unfortunately, at this time. But, you know, there are nonprofits working on that, too. Yes. So, um, so there, there is definitely a need for private sector funding for charitable causes. And I don't think that the government is the answer either. Like we don't wanna, I don't think anybody in, in the US, uh, except for perhaps actually some billionaires, want their taxes raised. Most people do not. So the government doesn't have the, the resources or the bandwidth to tackle some of these larger problems. Um, and also does, isn't as responsive to smaller things on the ground, certainly not on a federal level. Um, so there's this need for organizations, charitable organizations to step in and do some of the work. And without paying taxes, we can direct our own, call it discretionary income, call it tithing, uh, call it whatever you, you'd like, funds to the problems that we think are most important for government, for uh, society to uh, be able to tackle. Uh, I think back to the Soviet Union and, uh, you know, in the Soviet Union, there were no charities. And in fact, a lot of immigrants from the Soviet Union uh, to this day do not think that anybody needs to donate to charity because that's the role of government. At the same time, if you uh, turn it and ask them, they'll admit that the government in the Soviet Union, which claimed they would provide everything for everyone, really provided nothing for anyone except for the very wealthy elite that secretly uh, stole a lot of funds from the people. So in the US, we need this kind of balance to our capitalist system in a private way. Can nonprofits fulfill that need? And how do they approach this, this need for, at the moment anyway, uh, these, these white knights or these whales to come in and fund a lot of their major programming, knowing that it may not be responsive to their entire community. I'm seeing two questions in there. So let me break those out. I see several actually, but I see two major themes running there. Uh, what role the, in, in the capitalist system that we currently have 
nonprofits play, and also the role that the white knights play within that. So let me begin with the bigger, the, the, the first part that you bring up. Congress in its wisdom understood exactly what you're saying over a hundred years ago when they created the deduction for charitable gifts. So not only are our tax dollars uh, not going to go to these things that we would otherwise want them to go to, we're getting a tax benefit from this. So if we itemize, we will get a tax benefit. Now, just as a quick aside, you mentioned earlier, we talked about the de-democratization of, of giving. And one of the factors I think in the last couple of years has been the increase in the standard deduction, which means that fewer people are, are itemizing, which means that fewer people are able to take an advantage of, of their charitable giving. That trip, that doubled, I think for a married couple, it's about $25,000 now. So that's huge. So that, that, that's taken away a lot of the lower dollar donors from the charitable giving roles, okay? If that's a, if that's a, if that's an incentive, and there have been discussions as to how incentivizing a charitable deduction is, I don't believe that it's as much of an incentive as some people do, but it's there, especially for the larger donors. But the role of charities in society is—it's an interesting story we have here in the United States. You were talking about the Soviet Union, uh, Europe, also in the 1700s. Uh, anyway, had a lot of money and they supported a lot of what we now think of as nonprofits, the churches, the uh, art museums, the schools. And in the United States, we, we were very poor. We had no government money. Our government was bankrupt. In the 1820s, Alexis de Tocqueville came here from France to look at American society. And he was struck by the number of what he called associations and how people in communities would help do these things that in France, was done by the government. So we started out very poor, and I think that's what gave us birth, gave birth to our philanthropic system, which is very, very strong. And by the way, in this last year, we gave about $470 billion to charitable organizations, a 5% increase over the prior year. So the role of, of nonprofits, excuse me, yes, the role of nonprofits has always been somewhat defined by the fact that we didn't have any money to to, to put toward these purposes. And as the country has grown, it's grown richer, uh, there's still a mindset that the government can't do everything. I, I think even if we had all the money to do it the way we wanted to do it or that we could do it, we still wouldn't take on the European, the old European system where we would just pay for all of these things. Because there's a sense here that, and I, I believe it's a very strong one and a, and a very positive one, that as Americans, uh, we're more uh, individual. Now that's had its problems, Nothing's perfect all the way through, but that individualism has created this nonprofit sector that's very, very strong. Now, some of the larger problems that the government has to fix or that it needs fixing in society, only the government can fix. Nonprofits aren't going to build roads. They're not going to create a military. For the most part, they're not going to take us to the moon. They're not going to do a lot of the large, big things that, that government does. But there are a lot of organizations that are doing other things that are big. Cancer research, for example, that's a, a nonprofit government collaboration. The government's got an interest in this and the nonprofit world has an interest in doing this. And I hope together there can be enough work and research done for that to someday be a past tense disease. So I think that going forward, we're never going to get out of uh, having nonprofit play an extremely important role nor will we get out of the situation where 
uh, the government uh, doesn't want to spend some of these dollars for these purposes. And I think that's healthy. I think that's healthy. And, and the government encourages that through the deduction. That's the only way it can say, yes, we want to encourage you to make these gifts. And I think private philanthropy is a strong, strong, good moral force in society. And I think other, I know because I've been to Saudi Arabia to talk this, I've been to China to talk about this, I've been to England to talk about this. The idea of how we have grown to be such a philanthropically oriented society is pretty special here in the United States. And I wanna be very clear that that's different from saying that we are more philanthropic than other people. I believe that's a human tendency, not one defined by national borders. It's just that we have a system where that can be better expressed or more efficiently expressed. Now, to your second part there, where the large, I think you're calling them whales, these large donors, what role are they going to continue to play in this society as we go forward? Because if we continue the way we are, we might see a very, very elite nonprofit sector. And like we are saying in the United States right now at large, we're saying these higher endowed charities become even better and better off. And these lower endowed charities, if they're endowed at all, struggling more and more. And that takes away from, I think, the essence of what a charitable organization should do. And that's the other thing about this. Charities are public commodities. We, we're using public dollars to fund these organizations. So I think there's an argument on both sides there. But if we allow this mega donation mania that we have right now going into these larger and larger organizations, I'm afraid the system just may fall apart with such a division between the rich organizations and the small ones. This is where, if I may, this is where Mackenzie Scott comes in. Mackenzie Scott, the former wife of uh, Jeff Bezos, is known this past year for having given hundreds, billions of dollars to uh, underfunded, uh, mostly black, uh, historically black colleges around the United States. And recently, she gave another several hundred million dollars. And what she has done, she's hired these people to go out and talk to these organizations to find out where the need is. And they're not overfunded. They're not overendowed. They need this money. And the money she can give them is a real, a real help to them. Uh, I would like to see more of that kind of philanthropy rather than saying, okay, I'm going to give more money to Harvard. And I'm not picking on Harvard. They're a great organization. They really, really are. But uh, it's just that they have the largest uh, endowment in the United States. But Harvard doesn't need another building with someone's name on it uh, right now. Uh, so, and, and as you'll notice, uh, Mackenzie Scott isn't putting her name on any of these buildings. In fact, she's keeping that list of those organizations secret. It's only the organization, she's not keeping the organizations from talking about it, and some of them are. And that's how we're getting the news about who's getting what. So there's clearly so much more that we could discuss about this and, and endless things to learn on, on both sides of the conversation around this. Um, what are some resources that organizations, that uh, nonprofits that might be listening to this should maybe go and check out? Um, obviously, I think your books are going to be a, a great resource um, for both history and some practical knowledge and advice. Uh, are there any others that you would recommend I would, and thank you for asking. 
a lot of the literature and nonprofit and fundraising activity has to do with how great it is or how to do fundraising and how great it is that uh, donors can help help charities. And I think we need that and we need more of it. But two books that have caught my eye in the last year, one is called The Givers by David Callahan. And he examines who these people are, these givers, these donors, and what motivates them. It's a great book. It's not at all negative, but it's not, uh, it's not, it's not all positive either. And the other book is Winners Take All uh, by, and I've got to look at the name here. Uh, he's very famous, but I still have trouble with it. Anand Giridahadis, who's a very well-spoken, very knowledgeable person. And his is a critique. It's an outright critique of how philanthropy and philanthropists really perpetuate uh, the inequalities in American life. And I, I recommend those books, not because of the way they are negative, but because they're really positive, both of them, uh, because I feel the same way. I feel like I, I so cherish the nonprofit world and the role nonprofits play in the United States and the role philanthropists play. I so cherish it. I want to see them all do well. I don't want to see bad actors come in. I don't want to see the bad charities take over. Some years ago, there was a, an article in the Tampa Bay Times entitled The 50 Worst Charities in the United States. And it was a scathing review of how some charities really do misbehave. I want those people gone. I want them out of our sector. It's too pure and we need good people. And I know we're not angels. We will never have only angels in the nonprofit sector, even though sometimes we like to think of ourselves that way. But we are, and, and we are human, but we really have to be more, and I wrote a whole book about this on the ethical decision-making at, at nonprofits. We have to be better than the rest. I, I just, I, I feel our aspirations have to be higher. We don't have uh, a political environment in which to succeed, and we don't have a for-profit environment in which to succeed. The way we succeed is by really, truly making the world a better place, which I feel is a, a lot stronger a pull than either of the other two uh, motivators. Awesome. Uh, we're going to link to both of those books and to your works in our show notes. Um, if nonprofits are looking to delve further into this and, or to start uh, their path down this road, uh, where should they begin? Uh, what, do you have any calls to action for them to get going? Well, as a nonprofit, I think I've seen the areas of, there are three areas basically that I think need a particular attention, board governance. And there's a whole bunch of work within that whole process here. But as I mentioned before, you don't want one person steamrolling the others. Board governance is, is a process, it's, it's, a, it's a skill, it's a discipline, and people need to learn how to be board members because they are the ultimate uh, people at, a, at an organization. We don't hear as much about them as we do the CEOs, but they are extremely important. And so the process of board governance is, is critical. Um, ethical decision-making at charities, I think we have a, a, a unique space to make these decisions. As I said before, we don't have for-profit concerns and we don't have political concerns. We're kind of in a pure space to make ethical decision-making. Uh, as, as, as high level as possible. So I think we need to pay more attention to that so we keep our bad actors away. And finally, I think the question of impact. If I'm a nonprofit, I want to make sure that I can show why I exist. One of the things that I ask a nonprofit when we do our uh, retreats, the first thing I ask them, in fact, is 
Um, how would society be different if you if you didn't exist? If you closed your doors tonight, what would happen? Who would care? And board members have to actually think about that because it's like not intuitive. Like, what would happen if we didn't exist? And that and the answer isn't well. We're trying to cure this disease. That's that's what they want to do. What would happen if they did not exist? When you when I think of it that way, and I put this in another book, about thirty percent of our organizations could go away, and no one would notice. Uh, so we tout the fact that there are a million. And when I say a million, it's the five hundred one c three sector of section of the uh, c three sector, um, for profit and public charity. Excuse me, uh, nonprofit public charities and foundations. Probably a third of those, three hundred thousand. It's an it's it's a. I know that's maybe controversial, but I would say that that could happen and society wouldn't be any worse off. So if we're going to give money and if we're, excuse me, if we're going to ask for money, I think we have the obligation to tell people how we're going to use it and, and the kind of impact the organization is going to have overall. So those three areas, let me just repeat, governance, ethical decision-making and impact. If I'm a nonprofit, those are the three things I need to really pay attention to. Awesome. Um, and if people want to follow up with you, what's the best way to get in touch? I think LinkedIn. I've got a public page there. And when it says contacts at LinkedIn, you can click that. And I actually have my own addresses in there, my phone number and my email address. It's not just the LinkedIn address. So I think LinkedIn would be the best place to go. And I also do pay attention to that and, and tweak it every once in a while to make sure it's up to speed or up to up to date and it's up to speed with what I want. And so you'll see what my own value system is in there. And I, I put that in the introduction of it. And so if anybody wants to further a conversation or have a conversation, uh, feel free to touch base. Awesome. Thank you so much, Doug. Thank you for all your time today, your insights. Um, thank you, everybody, for joining us for this episode of the Nonprofit Hero Factory. If you like what you see or what you hear, please do subscribe, rate, and share our show with anyone that you know that might also benefit from the wisdom <laughs> that people like Doug are imparting. Thank you again, and we will we'll see you soon for another episode of the Nonprofit Hero Factory. Bye-bye. Thank you all for watching and listening to the Nonprofit Hero Factory. We hope this episode has given you some ideas and strategies for creating more heroes for your cause and a better world for all of us. Please be sure to subscribe to this show on YouTube, Facebook, iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. And let us know what you think by leaving a review.